2: All of Spike's articles and podcasts and essays are free and we want to keep it that way. But to do so, we ask our loyal supporters if they can afford it to chip in, ideally with a regular donation. It might not sound like much, but donating as little as 5 pounds per month can have a transformative impact on our work. For less than the cost of about 2 copies of the Guardian these days, you can help Spike's become bigger and better and bolshier than ever. So if you like our work and want to support us, please do consider signing up. Just go to spiked-online.com and click on the big red donate button in the top right corner. Thanks so much. And now, on with the show.
0: Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spiked Stepsy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Wiley's anti-Semitic rant, Boris Johnson's war on fat and Scotland's new hate crime bill. They're the ones
2: who get to benefit from it. It's systemic racism from their side. A community of Jewish lawyers and thingy have made me feel that way.
1: He claimed they are at war with black people and even suggested they deserve to be shot. He needs to be charged with incitement to racial hatred. Either these social media sites are part of the problem or they have to clean up their house.
0: The rapper Wiley took to Twitter and Instagram at the weekend to launch a racist tirade. Ranting for hours on end, he described Jewish people as snakes and cowards. He claims that Jews have systematically exploited black people in the music industry in a pattern of exploitation that goes back to slavery. Wiley has since been dropped by his management and has been permanently suspended from Twitter. He's since apologised and has offered to return his MBE. Twitter has also apologised for being slow to intervene, with many accusing the site of being too soft on antisemitism – compared to other forms of bigoted speech. Tom, what have you made of this saga?
2: Well, I thought it was really shocking on a couple of levels. First of all, just the rant itself. You know, if you think about some of the racism scandals that we've had in recent years, people, you know, speaking in public life or on Twitter or whatever, we've never really seen anything on this scale, just this kind of undiluted anti-Semitism conspiratorial tropes and it just going on for hours and hours and hours it was just this kind of sewer his feed for the best part of two days that was really quite shocking on its own terms Mm. but then what was also shocking of course was the response to it because I think what we saw in response to Wiley despite the fact as I say this being one of the most Appalling and prolonged kind of racist rants that we've seen for a while was the kind of lack of enthusiasm. There is this kind of enthusiasm gap for many people in terms of condemning racism between anti-Semitism and all other forms of racism. So people who would usually want swift and sometimes like mob justice meted out on people who who had expressed a racist view. There was this oddly kind of caring attitude. You know, you had Lily Allen saying that it's just really sad. Owen Jones wrote a piece which, while condemning Wiley, moved the conversation quickly on to Melanie Phillips, which seems a bit strange because wherever Wiley's getting his ideas from, it's certainly not from her. There was also this headline in the enemy which referred to them as his Israel tweets. There was an article in the voice this morning which basically said he might have articulated himself poorly, but maybe he has a point on these other issues. Really, really quite shocking. This is something that we've seen previously. We saw it during the Corbyn years um, where you had many people on the left who, whilst very quick to condemn racism in any other form, treated anti-Semitism as a lesser form of racism, really. And I think, as Brendan pointed out on Spike this week, this has a lot to do with identity politics, insofar in this really crude, stupid, and often quite obfuscating kind of pyramid of victimhood that they have. Jews, for whatever reason, despite anti-Semitism being the world's oldest hatred, kind of on the bottom of that pile, they're considered white, they're considered privileged. And because of that, I think there's a tendency not to take this as seriously and to be more sympathetic, even in some cases, to the people perpetrating this kind of bigotry. So yes, the rant itself was appalling, but I think the muted response to it was also appalling in its own way.
0: Ella?
1: Yeah, as Tom says, it was shocking, but then I've been seeing and other people have been noticing growing kind of anti-Semitism of this sort, particularly among high profile black artists. I mean, there was that instance of Ice Cube coming out on Twitter and sharing some of the oldest and most obvious anti-Semitic tropes in the form of images and praising Louis Farrakhan, the infamous anti-Semite black nationalist. And Wiley at the time defended Ice Cube and said that he was onto something And there has been a kind of low-level acceptance of particularly Farrakhan's views for a while. I mean, we know there were scandals about some members of the squad in America, the new up-and-coming Democrats um, supporting him Rashida Talib writing for a blog for him, I mean, that was way back in 2006, but then more recently, the scandal around some high-profile members of the organisers of the Women's March in 2018, professing support for him and also coming out with, again, anti-Semitic crap. And this all goes alongside the ongoing discussion of racism and how a lot of people who call themselves anti-racist and perhaps a supportive of Black Lives Matter or other movements argue that Jewish people benefit from white privilege and there's this just whole messy kind of row. It's oppression Olympics on the one hand, but it's also this suggestion that the anti-Semitism, growing anti-Semitism that Jewish people are experiencing in the West particularly, is somehow of little consequence. It just doesn't matter because what we really need to be talking about is Black Lives Matter. And The more sensible people have said, look, it doesn't matter whether it's racism against black people or anti-Semitism, all these things are wrong and should be condemned. But there is this very uncomfortable underlying suggestion that, and you can see it in the way some people have responded to Wiley, is that actually he's onto something, that actually these rich Jews really just don't want to admit that they're rich Jews. It's come out of this rather unfortunate personal altercation he's had with his manager who's Jewish. And that seems to be, if you were being generous, you'd say that might be what's fueling his you know particularly bizarre rage against the Jewish community um because it's got that personal aspect to it, but then you have to ask what well, why the significance does it have? I was kind of disgusted that Sky News got him on for another kind of round of ranting, also in a different way, kind of disappointed by the fact that, as Tom says, lots of people were saying, oh, you know, we need, you know, he might be suffering from mental health issues. We need to give him a chance. And you do think the double standards there are pretty stark because in all other cases, the same people who were saying we should give Wiley a chance would rush to condemn and ignore context with anyone else having any other kind of racist outburst. But the question is, has this just dropped out of the sky? Has he just simply gone mad? and decided to become a bigger overnight? Or is this a wider problem? And I think it's obviously the latter. For many different reasons that we covered on this podcast, Anti-Semitism has been sort of treated as the, the oldest prejudice, but also the prejudice that gets the least amount of light and condemnation. And that allows it to come out in these quite awful outbursts.
0: I share your concerns about anti-Semitism and certainly the equivocation over it from some quarters, um, which seems to be what allows it to spread. But I'm also worried that the only response from the kind of political and media class to this is to call for censorship, essentially. So you had the Tory Home Secretary, Priti Patel, um, demanding from Twitter and Instagram to know why these posts won't taken down sooner. You have Labour's uh, shadow digital secretary saying the government needs to bring forward its laws on online harms, which would, you know, potentially beef up the state's capacity to censor the internet. And you had a large number of people you know, from the great and the good taking part in this 48-hour boycott of Twitter, basically asking Twitter to beef up its rules in response to anti-Semitism. And that is also a big danger because really censorship doesn't confront racism at all. It sweeps it under the carpet. So if we want to allow anti-Semitism to fester, then we should go down the censorship route. I wrote about this in my column this week, but I think if people want to challenge racism, they should go ahead and do it. They shouldn't ask for Silicon Valley to step in, the tech giants to step in, or for the state to step in to just censor and hide away these views. They should challenge them robustly and take them on head on. And that's the only way we're actually going to deal with this problem.
1: I was listening to a Navara Media podcast when they were interviewing and talking with a woman called Rivka Brown, looking at whether or not social media boycotts are the right way to go. And it was a great example because they came up with this idea that it was right for Wiley to be banned off Twitter and Facebook and all these social media platforms, but his music still should be streamed on Uh, Spotify. And it's this weird kind of idea that these, like an artist like him should be able to, you know, make money and, and make music, but not have an opinion. And however wrong his opinion is, and it's, it's sort of unequivocally wrong. It's the most ignorant form of anti Semitism, you know, the idea that Jews were slave owners and all this crap that has just been disproved time and time again. But he's an individual supposedly living in what should be a free society and he should be allowed to say what he thinks. The kind of conflation of him as an individual with him as someone with a public platform you know the we get this all the time that as an artist with lots of followers and lots of fans he has a special kind of responsibility it's a kind of an insult to all those fans of grime music that they can't see the wood for the trees that they can't see antisemitism when they're faced with it and actually loads of his fans have come out and said look, we might be, you know, respectful of you to what you did for that particular genre of music, but you're way wrong on this. So censoring him in that kind of a way, sort of a tactical way, just seems utterly ridiculous.
2: Tom? just to pick up on a couple of things there i think first of all it, this really does demonstrate how confronting anti-semitism today also means confronting identity politics this mm. particular brand of anti-semitism that wiley came out with it's been around for a long time as ella was suggesting it has this kind of black nationalist use so this black hebrew Israelite stuff but at the same time i think a lot of that's been given a new lease on life by identity politics and for lack of a better phrase the oppression olympics i think you saw that in his sky interview when basically whenever he was pushed on the question of his anti-semitism he was saying that they're perpetrating systemic racism onto us you know that you know, why aren't we talking about the oppression suffered by my community? It's this kind of dynamic which is definitely inflaming that kind of sensibility. And I think the other thing, just to pick up on your point about censorship, Fraser, you touched on this in your article as well, which is that the question of anti-Semitism and censorship is actually quite crucial. Because when people talk about hate speech and racism, you know, the example that's always trotted out is if only hate speech laws were around, you could have stopped the Nazis, um which is historically illiterate obviously, because Germany had hate speech laws. They weren't called hate speech laws, but they had laws against libeling the Jews and every prominent Nazi you can think of. People like Joseph Goebbels, Julius Streicher, they were hauled before those courts time and again and prosecuted and it was used for them as another propaganda exercise. It was to demonstrate, you know, that the system and the Jews and everyone else were against them. It is so important that we take these things on, definitely because there is a hell of a lot of reticence out there. There's a hell of a lot of on the other hand going on, particularly in people on the left, which is absolutely shameful. But at the same time confronting that new anti-semitism cannot mean censoring it because not only does that lead us down a bad road for freedom but also as you say it just buries our heads in the sand
0: you're listening to the spike podcast spike has no subscriptions and no paywalls all of our content is free we rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Boris Johnson has unveiled a raft of nanny state measures aimed at tackling Britain's alleged epidemic of obesity, Johnson has blamed his own near-death experience with COVID-19 on his weight and has vowed to get the rest of the country into shape in time for a possible second wave of the virus. Boris's proposals include a ban on junk food advertising before the watershed, calorie counts on restaurant food, a ban on buy one get one free deals and an app, among other proposals. Ella, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, as much as I dislike all of the nanny state measures. that The point about this, which Rob Lyons makes in his column this week on Spiked, is that there is very little new in any of this. It's mm. a kind of a rehashed version of lots of old <laughs> nanny state ideas around losing weight and tackling obesity. There are already calorie counters on the menus at Pizza Express. There's already a big push in supermarkets to have nuts and dried fruit when you're queuing up for the cashier rather than sweets. I mean, all this stuff has been done already. And as Rob Lyons points out, none of it has worked if you go by the kind of current panic around obesity. We are still obsessed with people being obese, despite the fact that for years now we've had these measures in place. And the biggest point that some people have been making, to be fair to kind of the tenor of public discussion, is that if you want to allow people to lose weight, and there is a serious point to this, which is that if you are severely overweight and obese, then this particular virus Coronavirus, it is more dangerous for you and it is more likely that you'll be seriously unwell if you are over a certain weight. But if you want people to lose weight, how about doing some concrete things like making gyms cheaper and more readily available? How about using the lockdown to have allowed people to lose weight instead of shutting all public spaces? What about building some more swimming pools? It's It's extortionate trying to go to a swimming pool these days. I mean, all of these things that are so obvious that would actually make the process of losing weight even enjoyable. (laughs) The government seems to be blind to it. Instead, they're doing things like relying on apps like Couch to 5K. Everyone knows who's tried to do that app knows that it's you kind of do it a few times and then you drop it. It's all a bit ridiculous and it seems to be all for show. And the insulting thing behind all of this is there are actually two insulting things. One which drives me mad is that the government and matt hancock are still banging on about bmi which is a particular inaccurate way of measuring people's health and weight especially for women if you're a woman with a certain kind of chest size and you know a hip size then your bmi is going to be up in the high numbers and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're overweight from sort of school nurses to your average doctor, everyone knows that BMI doesn't tell you that much. So that's one thing that's incredibly annoying. And the second point is that all these measures are kind of based on behavioral science, tinkering around, nudge theory that just treats us like idiots. Nobody in their right mind is going and ordering a pizza thinking, I'm sure this is a balanced meal or picking up a Twix thinking, you know, this isn't going to do anything to the size of my thighs. We eat things like that because we enjoy them. And trying to re-educate people about weight loss just hasn't worked and isn't going to work. So either the government does serious things to make weight loss more efficient by providing resources in society for people to do that, or they leave us the hell alone. And I think actually probably do a little bit of both of them and we'd be better off.
2: Tom, I think as well as a lot of these things not being particularly new, a lot of this stuff has been tried and failed before. You know, one of the big key parts of this particular strategy is this no junk food advertising before the watershed idea, which has already really been implemented in relation to children's programming and it's had no impact whatsoever on childhood obesity surely kids are going to be the more impressionable ones in this conversation, you know, so <laughs> all of that is really quite obvious. The obsession with advertising is interesting anyway because this idea that just because fast food companies advertise therefore more people eat fast food is just completely nonsense, you know, there's loads of studies on this essentially what people are doing in a particular market is competing for a share of that market. It doesn't create new consumers of a particular product unless the product's brand new. You know, this is something that people have known for a long time. But again, because as Ella says, they do have this view of us as dim wits. They don't really appreciate this kind of thing. So on one hand, a lot of this is kind of just like a big bureaucratic virtue signal. It will have impacts on the food industry, etc. But obviously when it goes hand in hand with some of the other things that have been going on, this food reformulation scheme that Public Health England have, they've basically told the industry to cut 20% of calories out of food by 2024 or else it does show you the kind of direction of travel but i think the other thing that's interesting about it is this myth which has been an obvious myth for some time of boris johnson the libertarian you know Mm. this idea that he had this kind of more laid-back merry england you know made a point of saying that he wasn't going to introduce pudding taxes and things in his leadership bid but i think that didn't take into account on the one hand that he is a bit of a political weather vane in some respects so he is a bit of a flip-flopper but also you know when he was in city hall he introduced that ban of drinking and on the tube that was one of the first things he did he actually piloted the sugar tax in the city hall building itself in 2016 so i think that kind of myth of boris johnson libertarian but I think also shows and chris snowden made this point in the spectator this week where In relation to public health stuff, it really doesn't matter who you vote for. Public Health England always gets in. And that's one of the most depressing things about this. This strategy, all of this stuff, we've seen it all before because none of this stuff is ever challenged, regardless of who you vote for.
0: I think it's also worth taking a step back and thinking, you know, what is the context in which this policy is coming in? You know, we're towards the end of the worst pandemic in several decades we're facing the largest economic crisis potentially in the entire history of capitalism, and the government is worrying about your waistline and wants to tinker about a bit with where supermarkets place food on their shelves. And even worse, I guess some of the policies directly contradict the government's other policies. So if you think about the fact that this Obesity Drive arrives a week before the government's flagship eat out to help out scheme. <laughs> <laughs> so they're planning to ban buy one, get one free deals in supermarkets just at the same time that the state is going to subsidize 50% of your meal if you eat in a restaurant. And those restaurants include McDonald's and Nando's and Wetherspoons and Wagamama's. Also, those restaurants would now find it illegal to advertise their products before 9pm. I mean, it's just a complete contradictory mess and it shows a government that has absolutely no direction or sense of mission or purpose. They're just kind of... Going along with any of the latest ideas suggested, as you say, Tom, by Public Health England, by the government blob, they'll go along with anything.
1: Maybe you're only allowed to eat 50% of the meal. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the deal. <laughs> but on a serious point, you know, as much as it's unhealthy to eat in excess, and everyone knows that, even the fattest person in the planet knows what they're doing is unhealthy. What's also unhealthy is this kind of nurturing of this calorie counting. Mindset. I mean, in a genuine sense, I'm quite worried about a kind of growth of fat phobia. Um, not least because <laughs> I'm at slightly on the chunky side and I'm pretty fine with that, have always been fine with that. But especially for, you know, you, you think about other conversations that are being had. Ad nauseam about, for example, the effects of body image and advertising on young women and body sh- fat shaming and all that kind of thing. <laughs> and that, you know, not so long ago, that was such a big deal that adverts were being banned on TFL for weight loss pills and dieting campaigns. And now suddenly we're also supposed to be looking in the mirror and unless we are of the kind of perfect shape, and size and weight, be kind of concerned for our lives. And the fact is, there's a kind of nastiness growing. There was this article in The Telegraph by Charles Moore about why it was sort of laughable to ask us to lose weight when every nurse in the NHS is fat. And you just think, what kind of horrible crap is this? And there is a point at which you allow people to be sensible about the choices they make in life. But then if they deviate from those choices and do things that you don't like so for example become very fat that doesn't mean that you cast them as a drain on society and it also doesn't mean that you're sort of grow this kind of unpleasantness around them so i think we have to be careful about a growing kind of fascination (laughs) combined with the fat phobia that turns us into this kind of like slightly dystopian unpleasant society that's you know obsessed with what we eat
2: I think that so much of this discussion is just so incredibly sort of out of touch, really. I think you saw that in a lot of the debates in recent days about how even some people who are kind of against these changes um, and against the kind of nanny state stuff have made this point about saying, you know, no one ever points out that actually if you buy raw vegetables, it's cheaper than buying chips and smiley faces and all the rest of it. And again, there's just no appreciation of just how ordinary people live their lives in relation to all of this. First of all, it's not as if people, you know, it's like if you haven't got much money, you have to buy the cheapest food available. You might want something quick you might want something tasty. Time is one thing which is a big impact on all of this. If you've got two kids, you don't necessarily have time to spend an hour and a half making a delicious dinner. Like, this is the sort of thing where you know sometimes you do need something quick. That's never really taken into account of. This is a point actually all well made in wrote to Wigan Pier about there's a reason that unemployed people aren't necessarily as enthusiastic about having granola for breakfast. You know, people use foods in different ways. Now, that's not to say that, you know, every poor or working class person just fills himself with junk. That's obviously a complete stereotype and a misnomer in this at the same time. I think it's quite funny that this clamped down on junk food. For instance, when TfL introduced it for their advertising ban has actually caught a lot of middle-class food in the in the crossfire with Farm Drop, this kind of quite worthy company, having to pull their advertising because it had pictures of free-range eggs and bacon in the, in the foreground. So I think that's quite funny. And that tells us that despite the fact that there is often a class snobbery in this discussion, if they're going after high in fat, sugar and salt, it's going to hit a lot of things that even your average guardian Easter quite enjoys. But just so much about this discussion doesn't recognise that the way in which people of all backgrounds of their lives is that they're not constantly calorie counting, they're not constantly thinking about price, even sometimes you know, people just want something good to eat. (laughs) And there's nothing wrong with that. There's always going to be a small proportion of society who are going to have problems with their weight, but why we need this kind of nannying attitude and all these overbearing policies to deal with that seems to me disproportionate and fuelled more by Puritanism than it is by health room.
0: you're listening to the spiked podcast if you haven't already don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode you can subscribe to the podcast through itunes google play spotify stitcher and more and if your provider allows you to why not give us a rating and a review while you're there it really helps new listeners find the show The Scottish Government is introducing a new hate crime bill which would criminalise stirring up hatred and the possession and communication of inflammatory material. The Law Society recently warned that the restrictions the bill would impose on speech are so broad that it would even criminalise actors who played the part of bigoted characters in a play. The Scottish Police Federation has also warned that it would bring the police into disrepute by criminalising what people think and feel as well as what they say in private.
2: Tom, what are your thoughts? In many respects, I think this Scottish hate crime bill is a kind of gold plating of a lot of the hate speech legislation that we've seen for many years across the UK. As you say, there are particular things about it which are very concerning insofar as they do extend into the areas of you know theatre even. Um, There's no real appreciation for intent in relation to the offence of stirring up hatred. It's just if it's likely to stir up hatred. As you say, even possession of so-called inflammatory material um, is something which is potentially an offence under this piece of legislation. So there are specific things about it which are very concerning, which is why you've seen the Law Society of Scotland and the Police Federation come out quite strongly against this. One interesting comment about it was from Hamza Youssef, who's the um, Scottish Justice Secretary who's introduced this bill, and in response to this criticism he said, I don't accept that this curtails free speech at all. Free speech in itself is never an unfettered right. And I think that actually gets to grips with the issue when you're trying to argue against these pieces of legislation from a middle ground position which is basically accepting of the idea of hate speech, of the idea of hate crime as it breaches into the question of policing speech as something which is fine, you just need certain carve-outs. It's interesting that the theatre story has caught fire, I think, because that's one thing that I think the liberal establishment can get exercised about, is what will it do to theatre? What will it do to satire? But when it actually comes to people just expressing themselves on the internet or something, they don't really care. So I think what is, even though there's a lot about this which is shocking, it doesn't have even the protections that existing public order legislation has, it could seriously criminalise discussion of gender identity, religion, all sorts of things to an extent that we haven't seen. But at the same time, it springs from this consensus that we have in Britain, which unfortunately amongst the policymaking set seems very, very solid, which is the idea that there are forms of speech that you do have to clamp down upon. And once you've conceded that, there are always going to be people who try to push the envelope of that further.
1: Ella? As with all of these attacks on free speech, one of the central points of it is that it just seems to be completely blind to context but purposefully blind to context as if it never matters. So that's why the example of the arts and the theatres is such a good one because obviously if you are putting on acting, pretending, putting on a production which displays certain viewpoints, more often than not these days to lambast them, then there is a particular context there. And anyone with half a brain knows what you're trying to do. No one thinks that you're simply using the N-word or being homophobic or wherever it is just for the sake of it. And so with that move to be blind to context, we end up just having this really ignorant and quite base view of how we talk about these things. And it also means that, you know, you can't make intellectual and complex arguments against prejudices in society. You know, one of the most infamous examples of this happening was when there was a mass move to ban Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn from schools, curriculums in the US and in some schools in the UK, because in it Huck Finn uses the N-word. And at no point did any sort of teacher's argument stand up and say, The reason why it's very important that Mark Twain has put the N word in the mouth of this child is to show, just to show how abhorrent it was. And it was making a very important political point at the time. But context is completely irrelevant. And this is why to go down to sort of. Level. That's why you had the case of the Nazi pug in Scotland, because their context in that was completely irrelevant. It was simply a fact that he was doing something that seemed on the face of it to be offensive. And, you know, what happens there if we can't have any understanding of sort of ulterior motives or of what's being implied of any kind of subtlety in these discussions, then we just can't talk about it. And I think that's what these people who are for these kind of laws want. They just don't want anyone to talk about it. And as we've already mentioned in relation to anti-Semitism, if you don't talk about these things, then they tend to fester and they tend to come out in different areas in a much stronger and more visceral way than if you actually had a sensible discussion about them.
0: The other important point about context is the context of the SNP. This bill is drawn up by one of the most authoritarian parties in the United Kingdom. SNP loves its kind of nanny state legislation. You think about the broader attacks on liberty that have taken place in Scotland, so many of which have thankfully been defeated actually. Mm. Like the Named Persons Bill, you know, which assigned a state guardian to to every child in the country. That was thankfully repealed. There was the offensive behavior at football bill, which criminalized fans for singing songs or holding up distasteful banners. Again, defeated. I mean, what's interesting is that there is thankfully a lot of opposition in Scotland to this bill. Even the Scottish Labour Party and no friends of freedom uh, have come out against it. And the response from the Scottish Police Federation is really, really very stinging. You know, it says it will devastate the legitimacy of the police. The bill would move into criminalising what people think and feel. And so there is thankfully quite a nice pushback against it.
2: One of the ironies of this bill as well was that it was actually celebrated a little bit at first by some of the kind of um, secular humanist atheists set because of the fact that it was one thing that it was going to do was to replace in part the um, long defunct Scottish blasphemy law. So there was some celebration of it on that level. But I think this is the point that we really need to make is that the sorts of speech that the legislation like this is seeking to clamp down upon, whether it's anti-trans speech or whether it's homophobic speech or whether it's um, racist speech, etc. These are the new blasphemies of our age. And that we need to recognise that if whether it's a blasphemy law clamping down and you can't take the piss out of the established church or Jesus Christ, whether it's you know making any of these comments in relation to any of these groups, whether it's a blasphemy law against something that we can all agree with is terrible, or it's a blasphemy law against a set of views which um, in modern society we do find genuinely despicable, you still have to recognise that it has such a corrosive effect on freedom for the state to get involved with policing, what it's acceptable to say and ultimately what it's acceptable to think. And I think what we really need now, if we're going to push back against these kinds of increasingly authoritarian policies is that it has to be that kind of fundamental argument for that. Even if it's a blasphemy law that you agree with, or you agree with the sentiment of it, it's still incredibly corrosive. It will only spread further. And as we've seen in Scotland, thankfully, we are starting to see some pushback from this. Because I think in Scotland in particular, with things like the Name Person Scheme, with things like the OBFA, where you saw people, ordinary people's lives really drag through that, it really made present in their lives this kind of authoritarianism. I think, naturally, we're starting to see a bit more of a pushback against that. And hopefully that's something can go beyond Scotland and become a conversation that is nationwide. You've been
0: listening to the Spike podcast. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.